Hi, I'm Adrian Lee, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Almost as quickly as it all began, the United Nations 26th Annual Climate Change Conference is now hurtling to its end. Most of the world's leaders have already left COP26, meaning the showier announcements are now actually behind us. But just how effective will these promises be at actually reducing emissions? And will they actually get done? I also do think there's a recognition that you really can't have failure coming out of here, that you don't want to contribute to pessimism, and you need to find a way to declare victory somehow. So I think that's why you may see more compromise on these, because there's an awareness that the world doesn't have a lot of time for minute disputes. That's Adam Redwanski. He's a columnist for The Globe and Mail who focuses on climate change, politics, and policy. And he's joining us from COP26 in Glasgow. So let's cut through the noise. You're listening to The Decibel. Uh, Hey, Adam, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Where exactly are you right now? I think you could say that I'm sort of perched in the corner of what looks like a giant spaceship. I am sitting in the media center of the Scottish events campus in Glasgow. I'm kind of down a quiet hallway here, pretty much in the quietest part of this building that I could find, which is beside a bunch of fancy media outlets like the Wall Street Journal and others that have their own little offices here, which I will point out I do not, although maybe I should have booked one. So what has attending COP26 for the last week been like, uh, especially given it's happening in the midst of this global pandemic? It's been highly chaotic, especially early on. I think last week, the first couple of days of this conference were when all of the world leaders were here. And that meant extreme security. Plus, you had, of course, all of these people arriving from different places, all needing to go through various forms of testing. Uh, Personally, I came here on an overnight flight on the Sunday night and got into Glasgow at about 7.30 in the morning, went straight to the conference center. And honestly, and I think this is not totally unique to this COP, it takes two or three days just to get a handle on the thing because it is so big and there's so many things going on at once that you really need to kind of figure out how to spend your time and who to talk to and recognize that you can't get to everything. By about three days in, I felt like I'd started to get some degree of a handle on it. And what's the mood on the ground been like over the course of the summit? The mood here is really mixed. Uh, I think, first of all, in terms of people who've attended it often, there has been some complaining about uh, it being a bit of a production compared to usual. Partly this COP is very large compared to most previous versions of this conference. In terms of what the conference is actually achieving, uh, I think it's mixed. I think there's some people who are very optimistic and feel like there's real progress being made here toward goals that have kind of been bedeviling attendees of this for for many different versions of it, and a sense of general momentum because there's such a feeling of urgency right now in, in 2021 compared to what you would have had even a few years ago at COP. But I also think there are a lot of other people uh, who feel a degree of frustration, the Greta Thunberg line that she's repeated a bunch of times now about about it being a lot of blah, blah, blah. A two-week-long celebration of business as usual and blah, blah, blah. I think there is a feeling of, you know, a lot of broad statements of ambition here, a lot of shared goals that are announced, but maybe not as much tangible progress as people want to see. There's been a particularly frustrated tone among some members right from the outset of this conference, among some members of developing countries, delegations, poorer countries. You know, they are frustrated because 
they'd been promised by, by richer countries $100 billion annually toward both reducing their emissions and preparing for impacts of climate change that they're disproportionately bearing. And that money was late to be delivered. And there was, I think there was concern coming into the conference that it could get really ugly actually early on uh, because there was real unhappiness on that front. They managed to avoid it kind of blowing up in that sense. Mm-hmm. We, should, we should look back on that first week. I mean, what would you say have been the top three achievements or agreements that have come out of COP so far? In some ways, the biggest achievement of COP so far was achieved before it began, which is that the size and scale of this event presented a lot of pressure on countries to up their emissions reduction commitment. And that meant that even before it began, most of them, Canada included, had announced fairly robust new numbers of emissions reduction targets, uh, which they're obligated to do heading in based on the process. But, but I think the feeling is that they felt they couldn't turn up empty-handed because of the type of event this was, and that helped. And another agreement, that particularly for Canada, that was relevant was one that was reached last week among a group of 20-some countries that committed to ending international financing for fossil fuel projects, which means in Canada's case, in most countries, that we're talking about providing financing for Canadian companies that are selling fossil fuels abroad or developing, producing fossil fuels abroad. And that is a pretty major commitment. And it's the type that actually has relevance here because the commitment is to stop providing that kind of funding, which is in the billions of dollars, starting in 2022. So it has a short-term goal and actual real impact. So that's the kind of thing where you look and say, okay, that's actually something that didn't exist before this that has real relevance. Mm-hmm. On those new emission reduction pledges, there, there was some news out of what India announced. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Yeah, so India was kind of the star of the show here in that President Modi turned up with a new commitment that nobody really expected. Now, the commitment itself is not particularly strong if you compare it to other countries. They're promising net zero by 2070, which is not a great timeline. Uh, But the fact that he didn't at all, I think, was encouraging because that's a country that has been reluctant to make any commitments. And I think it was seen widely as being progress. And from climate-related experts you've spoken to, what has the reaction been like on some of these pledges? I think there's excitement to a point around the number of countries willing to make strong commitments they wouldn't have made before. And a sense that this shows that we've entered a new phase where the realities of climate change and the need to urgently address it are inescapable. That said, I think there was also a bit of announcement and agreement fatigue after the first week. I mean, there was one day where there were multiple coalitions, at least two of them spearheaded by Britain, which is toasting, uh, to get off of coal. And there's overlapping members in them, and one has weaker goals than the other. One was pre-existing, one is new. Nobody really understood, even inside the building, what these were. And I think there's a bit of a concern there that it's too easy to sign on to these things in some cases, and that maybe having a smaller number of them would be helpful. Let's talk about how these conferences actually work. How do these agreements and negotiations come to be at COP? So there are several different COPs happening at once in a way, and it's kind of useful to break them down probably. One of them is the official negotiations, and that's quite wonky technical stuff that gets into largely finalizing aspects of the Paris Agreement that was set in 2015, but has been held up with various clauses in dispute around uh, credit trading mechanisms between different countries, uh, around transparency issues, that sort of thing. Then there are the sort of unofficial negotiations where countries wind up announcing that wide range of different agreements, which might involve 20 or 30 countries at once, uh, which can be easier in a way because the official negotiations require 
consensus, which means you have to get almost all of the nearly 200 countries here to agree to something, which makes it obviously difficult to, uh, to achieve a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And, and amidst all of this, I mean, how do you, how do folks come to consensus? How do, how do we actually get to any kind of consensus-based decision-making? You get the consensus with great difficulty. I think the hope, again, is that the outside pressure leads to it and that perhaps countries don't want to be held up individually for delay tactics, for throwing things off the rails. But also what tends to happen is they agree on the easiest stuff and not the hardest stuff, which is why there are certain aspects that have been debated every year at COP and not yet gotten to fruition. Uh, I think where you also will get some movement is where there have been these long disputes and then countries at this one say, okay, well, we just need to compromise because we can't emerge from here not saying anything. We can't, we can't emerge saying, again, we haven't been able to resolve X dispute, so we're willing to give a little bit. And even that includes, controversially, of course, those who want more hard lines around transparency or more ambition around the way things are set, uh, maybe saying, okay, look, we accept that we're not going to let the perfect be the enemy of the good here because we just need something coming out of here. Okay, so let's look forward to the final days of COP26 ahead. There's still a bunch of negotiations still to do, but the big thing is Article 6, right? Can you tell me about that? Article 6 is certainly one of the biggest issues on the table here, and it has been at several editions of COP since the Paris Agreement was reached in 2015. Uh, Article 6 is supposed to create a mechanism that allows for emissions credit trading between different countries, which means that if a country exceeds its emissions reduction commitment, it might be able to sell credit to a country that's not meeting it, which in theory should allow, obviously, both those countries that really can't get there to find a way to do it, and also to encourage more ambition among those who might have an easier time meeting their goals. There are a few longstanding disputes that have held up Article 6 from actually being put in place properly. Um, one of them is a concern around how to avoid double counting, uh, which is to say both of the countries in the transaction somehow claiming the emissions reductions themselves toward their targets, which obviously you want to avoid. Uh, there's another longstanding issue where some countries hold credits from a pre-existing system dating back to the Kyoto uh, Agreement over a decade ago, well over a decade ago, that were created in a laxer way, but they've been holding on to them. They want those to be able to apply into a new system, which others want to avoid because it would essentially compromise the integrity of the system. I do think there's some sense that they really want to get a deal on this this time, because it's fallen apart a couple of times previously and a little more give, and I'm sensing some degree of optimism among negotiators about landing on something in Article 6. But of course, the question if they do is, does it have the integrity to hold up well and contribute to the ultimate goal, which is to to maximize rather than minimize the emissions reductions? Mm. I got to say, I mean, this kind of bureaucratic haggling and, and petty-seeming details and, and all that stuff, it feels like that's where people get that sense of pessimism, that this major act is being caught up in the details. What would you say to that? I think that's true, that people feel a little bit frustrated by how these things have been held up. I think that may be why we've seen a little bit less focus on the actual negotiations at this conference and a little more on the big announcements that may not involve every country, but involve 20 countries together pledging something that's ambitious. Because there's a sense that you can't always get held up on the technical details and you need to create momentum coming out of here, which is the main point. So I think there's an attempt to get around it a little bit. 
but I also do think there's a recognition that you really can't have failure coming out of here, that you don't want to contribute to pessimism and you need to find a way to declare victory somehow. So I think that's why you may see more compromise on these because there's an awareness that the world doesn't have a lot of time for minute disputes. Of course, the challenge is that it only takes a few countries to hold something up. And if you're, say, the government of Brazil, maybe you don't care that much about how you look and being an international villain. So that, I think, is where it gets hung up is because they've got this consensus-based model for negotiations, you don't necessarily have enough pressure on every single participant to get through some of these really in the weeds, but quite important to those participants' discussions. And just to clarify, why is setting up an international market for carbon seen as an important part of this whole thing? The international market is seen as important because it has the potential to encourage ambition that's greater than currently from countries that might be able to sell credits by exceeding their goals and to make it easier for other countries to commit to, to higher goals knowing there's some mechanism if they can't quite get to them. It's also important because it could in some ways influence rule setting around private credit trading markets, which are hugely important as many private sector businesses look, for instance, to purchase offsets as they set their own net zero goals. So you've had a chance now to see how this massive summit works. Before arriving in Glasgow, though, you expressed some doubts that these kinds of major scale multilateral conferences were actually the best forums to tackle an urgent global issue like climate change. But now that you've been there for a little while, has your position changed at all? Yeah, I think I've been won over a little bit mm. on the value of, of this event. I do think there are valid criticisms. First of all, look, there's no way of getting around it. Thousands of people flying around the world to go to a climate conference is going to have some degree of hypocrisy to it. I think, you know, the scale of it, I mean, COVID, world leaders rubbing elbows, while in some places people are supposed to be more careful at home. All of that, I do think, has some public perception issues. But I do think there is value here in that the scale of the event, the media attention paid to it, the fear of turning up at this empty-handed does drive action. And, you know, if this was a small event where a bunch of negotiators who are essentially mid-level officials in their governments were hammering out deals and maybe some environment ministers turned up to talk, uh, but, you know, nobody else paid too close attention until maybe the last day, it would be really easy for countries not to deliver much here. And I think given the size of it, there's real pressure to produce results. And in a general sense that they have to come out of here with a little more or else risk embarrassment. Thanks to Adam for joining us. Before we go, just want to give you a quick update on a story we've been following. A couple weeks ago, the Globe's telecom reporter, Alexandra Pazadsky, joined us to talk about the family drama around Canada's largest wireless carrier, Rogers. First, Edward Rogers, the son of the company's late founder, Ted Rogers, tried to get rid of CEO Joe Natale. But the Rogers board of directors, which includes Edward's own sisters and mother, nixed that. Edward then decided to try to replace five of the directors who had opposed him without holding a shareholder meeting. He says that under the laws of BC, which is where Rogers is incorporated, you don't need to have a shareholder meeting to replace directors. The company then puts out a statement saying that this is invalid, essentially. And um, now the two sides kind of find themselves 
in a disagreement over which independent directors currently sit on its board. On Friday, the BC Supreme Court decided that Edward Rogers was in the right. The company also announced it wouldn't appeal that ruling. Okay, that's it for today. I'm Adrian Lee. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Mikhail Stein edited this episode. Kasia Mikhailovich is our senior producer. Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. If you want to reach out to the team, email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm grudgingly on Twitter at Adrian Cayley. If you haven't already, hit that follow button wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. And thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.